Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So our first practice question that we have this week is a question from Jerry. Thanks so much for adding this to the page. And so he's saying the question is if a researcher creates a questionnaire that has extra emphasis placed on certain questions, what type of error will this findings likely have too? Um, And so our options here, we're looking at sampling error, measurement error, are non-response error or errors of data disproportion. And he's saying, I really don't understand why the answer is B in this question. Can someone help me explain it? And this is such a great question. And how I would first kind of start looking at it too is making sure, making sure that we can, sorry, um, making sure that we can understand, well, what are those different things, right? So kind of looking back at the question we're saying, Okay, this researcher's making questionnaire that has an extra emphasis on certain types of questions. So we're really concerned that there's going to be that bias there because if there's an extra emphasis on a certain type of question, I might answer it differently, right? It might be more likely that I answer it. And so this one, our answer is the measurement answer, uh, measurement error. And the reason why is because what we're thinking here is there's an error because of the actual tool that I'm using, um, that there's going to be an error. Versus when we're thinking sampling error, this is going to be talking about, you know, that I'm just not getting an actual good enough sample to get information to. Non-response error is saying, like, if I put out a survey about, you know, like, what is you know, a recommendation you have to change in the course. And, you know, we could say, oh, well, all the people answering are people who didn't like the course, you know, versus the whole sample. So we're saying, like, you're not getting everyone in the pool because a lot of people aren't answering. For sampling areas, I'm sampling, like, a non, you know, a non-randomized, non-representative portion of the class, um, too. So that one's a really great one, too. Um, where we have some really great vocab in there as well. So next up, we have a question from Megan, and she's saying, I need help with the questions asking about pros and cons of continuous tube feeding, combination feeds, cyclic feed, and bolus feeds. So really great question, and we can kind of break this down. So continuous feeds, right, this is someone who's on tube feeds 24 hours a day. So, you know, pros of that, right, are going to be the fact that it's at the lowest rate possible, right? So we're seeing, you know, decreased risk of aspiration, especially if a patient is not stable, right? This is kind of our lowest risk feeding option. Really big con is the fact that I'm going to be kind of connected to this feeding tube all the time. So I can't, you know, so things I'm thinking about with my patients when they're stuck on continuous tube feeding. I'm like, well, you know, a lot of the time they don't want them to be connected for like PT, you know, that's going to be hard for them to kind of like take a shower, you know, and you have this IV pole with you all the time. 
we think about that too when we think about um, continuous TPN of like you're connected all the time. It's really annoying. Um, verse next one, the cyclic feeds, we're thinking, okay, right, so that means I have time off the pump, right? So cyclic could, is anything less than 24 hours. It could be 20, it could be eight. And so a big pro of this is time off the pump. I can really kind of do a lot of different, a lot of different things. I can also run this just overnight so I can be off the entire day. This is really great too for if you have a patient who's taking POs, right? Because they can eat during the day. They're not going to be full from the tube feed. Um, but a big con of it is it does have to run at a higher rate. And a lot of the time, you know, especially as we're increasing the rate, I'm also concerned too about if I'm feeding with jejunal feeds, right? I can only, for the jejunal feeds or small intestine feeds, I only can go to 120 milliliters per hour with a J-tube. And so I might be limited in how many hours I could cycle. And then bolus feeds, remember what we're thinking with our bolus feeds is that this is me kind of using the syringe. So, right, the biggest pro is that you can kind of do that four times a day, kind of like your meals, have a very kind of normalized eating pattern. A big con of that is going to be that that's the highest volume possible, right? So your patient might throw up, they might not tolerate it. So really great question, too, to kind of be thinking about, do I, first question of, do I know what each of these are and when did I use them? And hopefully that's especially helpful for some of you guys who didn't necessarily get as strong um, as strong as a clinical um, experience as well. So next up, we have a question of what do we do if our patient has really high calcium? Um, and so what we're thinking here, options were increased calcium and phosphate in the diet, um, you know, decreased dialysis frequently, um, Frequency, decrease phosphate in the diet, increase use of phosph binders, and also decrease dialysis, um, decrease dialysis duration. And so one thing we want to be thinking about, too, with our calcium and potassium is we're thinking about the fact that if I'm adding more, um, if I'm adding more phosph binders, the phosph binders tend to be having calcium in them because calcium is going to kind of help to regulate, um, be regulating the diet too. So when we have our renal patients, we want to have, you know, a nice balance of potassium, not potassium, sorry, uh, phosphorus and calcium. So we're not seeing kind of those levels, um, those levels rise too much. So sometimes these patients, you know, can get um, a little bit extra dialysis, but a lot of the time too, we want to make sure we're having that balance, like I said, of potassium and phosphorus to help keep those balanced levels as well. With these patients too, we're also concerned about um, their parathyroid hormone too, because if they're having an increase in parathyroid hormone, we're going to see that increase in calcium as a response. So a lot of the time these patients can also be put on agents that are going to lower the excretion of parathyroid hormone too. Next up, we have a great question from Al that I feel like a lot of my one-on-one students had this week. I always feel like there's themes, which is really funny. And so they're saying that, you know, when we're looking at, you know, like infant and pediatric needs, like everything seems to have kind of a different source. You know, am I multiplying the kilograms, you know, and then adding something, you know, so it can definitely be 
really confusing. And, you know, just like adults, it really kind of varies on the age, especially when you're looking at like infant, you're going to see some resources that are like zero to six months is 500 calories. And then six months to one year is going to be like 700 calories. And it's better to be doing these weight, um, these weight-based calculations, these weight-based calculations as well, um, because it's just going to be better. So sometimes we see that they're using the equation and this one we'll see on pocket prep where they're saying the needs for four um, to six months, we're doing, we're going to be doing 89 times the weight of the infant in kilograms minus 100 plus 56. That one is definitely a really lengthy one, but you can definitely see pocket prep questions doing that to kind of find the answer. What I think is also very helpful, and I posted it in the Facebook page underneath that question too, um, is this table where it's looking at the needs, calorie needs for the age group. Um, and the calorie per kilogram needs, like I said, is a lot of time a little bit easier to remember too. And so if we're thinking about infants, right, they have the highest needs ever in their lifetime. So they're gonna, we're going to be saying 108 calories per kg for like an infant zero to five, five not zero to six months, versus when we get up to like adolescents, right, who are 15 to 18, it's like 40 for calories per kg for females. So what I recommend with these is definitely knowing the calories per kg ranges. And then, you know, you can kind of, that will get you a baseline. You can also compare to the equations and see like, well, what falls in between? Because sometimes it's definitely hard to know what they want to. Um, next question we had from Brianne who said, does anyone have creative ways to remember intracellular versus extracellular? Um, and so one way I like to teach it in my classes is I like to think, you know, for potassium, right, this is our main intracellular electrolyte. And depending on where you live, you might have these gas stations or you might not. Um, but if you think about there's a gas station that's circle K. So one way to think about it is like circle K, potassium is inside the cell versus sodium, which is our major extracellular electrolyte. I like to think sodium space, um, you know, kind of like ET phone home situation space. Um, and that's a good way to kind of think about it. But also you want to know kind of why this is sodium being our extracellular electrolyte. This is why, right, we're looking at it for fluid balance, you know, versus potassium, right, when we refeed, it goes in the cell. So definitely, you know, great ways to kind of think about it too. Okay, next one we have is one that I feel like everyone is always asking too. And this is, I'm probably going to mispronounce the Campanaha that coach model, you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, but like this comes up on packet prep, it comes up on eat right prep. And it's like, where is this on the inman? Answer is it's not in there, but it's okay, right? Because we know, right, that inman is a reference, not a Bible. We love Google. Um, and so this is a model for cultural competence. And so what we're thinking here is we're trying to kind of be aware of other cultures so we can treat them best. So there's four components of the model, the cultural awareness, right, that there's other cultures, the cultural knowledge, right, of like what are these cultures, right? We have this cultural skill of being able to kind of knowing how to work with these cultures and then the cultural encounter 
which is like I'm actually like doing it. I'm involved with these populations too. So you, for here, you want to know that it's with cultural competence, and then you definitely want to know cultural awareness, cultural knowledge, cultural skill, and cultural encounter are really great ones to kind of know too. Um, so next up, we have a question from me that I was asked in rounds um, last week, and I was like, this was such a good question. I'm going to put it on my Facebook page. Um, so the question we got asked in rounds by one of our fellows was, why can Orlistat put a patient at higher risk for GI bleeds? And when they first asked me this, I was like, hmm, I can't really think why. Um, and then we were talking about it. And the fellow was like, well, you guys, what is Orlistat? And we're like, okay, well, this is a drug for obesity, right? And it's causing there to be malabsorption, intentional malabsorption of fat. So you're excreting more fat, kind of having intentional steatorrhea. And she was like, okay, perfect. So what would you have, you know, if you're like, what are you going to have malabsorption of? Which is a question I ask my students in their fat metabolism homework. And they, right, we're excreting fat, right, calories, and also, right, potentially those fat-soluble vitamins. And so the reason that they can have increased risk of bleeding is thinking, right, vitamin K is leaving, right? Vitamin K is helping us to clot. So with the GI, the risk of GI bleeds, it's because you can be having, you know, decreased vitamin K, which is going to cause us to have an increased prothrombin time, which is going to make it easier to bleed. Next question we have from Anna on one of my favorite topics, glucose metabolism. Definitely check out that course on my website, it's one of my favorite classes I teach. I'll have to do it live soon too. Um, because this is a perfect topic where we all go into it like, ah! And when you understand it, I really promise it's not that scary. So here's the question. It says, if there's not enough oxyl acetate, um, acetate available for the TCA cycle, what is going to happen? And so options here are pyruvic acid cannot convert into acetyl-CoA, Glucose 6-phosphate cannot convert into pyruvic acid. Acetyl-CoA coming in from fat cannot be handled properly. Glycogen cannot be converted back to glucose 6-phosphate. So what you want to be thinking of when we're thinking of glucose metabolism is you want to be able to kind of think through the whole chart. Drawing it out is really great and kind of walking through it. Because my goal is that it should, when I ask you about glucose metabolism, which remember is two-part glycolysis and then Krebs cycle, is I want you to be able to tell me about it like you're telling me directions to get to your friend's house, right? And going, okay, well, first, we're glucose. Then we're glucose 6-phosphate. At glucose 6-phosphate, I could go into the pento shunt. I could also go to form glycogen. But if I'm going to form energy, I'm going to go from glucose 6-phosphate to pyruvate acid to acetyl-CoA. And then I'm going to enter my Krebs cycle First step is I combine with the oxyl acetate with my acetyl-CoA, remembering that oxyl acetate is made from carbs, and I'm going to travel around the cycle. And that, of course, is a little bit abbreviated for time, but you guys get the point. So the first thing I want to look at is I'm going to say, what do I know about oxyl acetate? And I'm going to say, well, that is all the way down in the Krebs cycle. So anything that's not in the Krebs cycle, right, pyruvic acid cannot convert to acetyl-CoA, Take that out, that would be thiamine. Glucose 6-phosphate cannot convert to pyruvic acid. Nope, take that out, that's not in the Krebs cycle. 
glycogen cannot convert back to glucose. No, that's above. So even if I'm like, I don't know, right? I can get that it's C. And the reason why it's C is because even if I'm making acetyl-CoA from fat, I still need to have that acetate to kind of jumpstart my reaction. That is the first step is acetate combining with acetyl-CoA. The first step of the Krebs cycle is not just acetyl-CoA like coming in and then going around the cycle. It's that combination. So if I don't, you know, I can be, you know, eating very limited carbs, I need enough to make the oxaloacetate. Um, two. Okay, next one question from me. I said, from a legal standpoint, which is an appropriate question to ask when interviewing candidates? So have you had a serious illness? What are your childcare arrangements? Do you anticipate you'll be absent from work on a regular basis? What year did you graduate the program? And this is one where a lot of people forget to read the question, right? So here I'm saying, which question is legal for me to ask, right? So I go through them. Have you had ever had a serious illness, right? You cannot ask about my health history. Take it out. What are your childcare arrangements? Absolutely not. You can't ask if I have kids. You can't ask what they're doing. Nope. Um, do you anticipate you'll be absent from work on a regular basis? That one's allowed, right? It's kind of vague. It's perfect, right? That could be getting at, are you ill or do you have kids, right? Without asking, in what year did you graduate your dietetic program? No, right? That could be age bias. So when we're thinking about questions that are okay to ask in hiring, there are questions like around the question, right? So if I want to, you know, ask if you have a car, I can't do that, but I can say, do you have reliable transportation to work, to get to work? If I want to ask you, right, if you have a serious illness or if you have, you have kids, right, I can ask, like, are there any, is there anything that would, you know, stop you from being able to work these shifts, you know, and then if you supply it to me, that's fine, right? I can, if I'm interviewing someone in my see really young, right? I can ask them, how many years have you been practicing as a dietitian, right? So I can kind of ask around it, but I can't be asking with age. I always like to tell my students when we go over this question, I'm like, when I got hired as a diet tech, in the interview, they were like, are you old enough to work here? Because I looked really, really young when I was like 20. And I was like, like, yes, like I have a degree. I have all the credentials. It's fine. But I also was like, you can't ask me that. But yeah, they were, they were so suspicious, which I thought was really, really, really funny. Um, until, okay, next one. Which of the following scenarios can cause hyponutremia? So we have decreased water intake, increased ADH secretion, decreased vasopressin excretion, and increased sweating. And so this question, right, we want to break it down. Hyponutremia is high, is going to be our high sodium, um, is going to be our high sodium, I'm sorry, low sodium, hyponutremia. Ooh, got that mixed up for a second. Uh, so hyponutremia is going to be our low sodium thing. Hypo, low. So I'm talking volume overload here. And so I'm looking for one where I'm volume overloaded so I can cross out any that are, I'm going to be dehydrated. Decreased water intake, dehydration. Like, it's me right now, it made me thirsty. Um, right, and then increased sweating, take it out, I'm going to be dehydrated. Now, I'm left with increased ADH and decreased vasopressin. And this is a great pause where if you're looking at them and you're like, 
Nina, I'm not 100% sure what they do. Put a note in your notebook right now to look over the hormones. So you're not going to really be able to get this question if you can't say what is vasopressin, what is um, ADH. So ADH is antidiuretic hormone, um, is antidiuretic hormone. And so antidiuretic hormone, right, we're, we're saying, okay, stop diuretics. If I give someone diuretic, right, they're going, they're going to be peeing it out. We had a comment in the live too. I thought that um, hypernutremia is volume overload. So again, let's think about this. And I always like to think about volume with fish. And this is going to help us answer the question too. So, right, if I have like all my fingers will be the fish. Uh, so if I have all the fish, right, and these are my, in this case, the fish are my electrolytes, are my sodium, right? And I have kind of like my normal amount, right? And my normal volume, right? They're going to be normal. Now, if I'm dehydrated, I have that same amount of fingers or fish or whatever you want to be thinking of in a smaller location. So it's going to seem high. If I have volume overload, I have that kind of same amount of fingers, same amount of fish, um, and they're spread out. So it looks like there's less. So hypernutremia is dehydration. Hyponutremia, think low, this is volume. This is going to be volume overload. So that's definitely a good one too to kind of look at. And remember too, when we're thinking about our electrolytes, sodium is really going to follow these rules. It's not always the case with other electrolytes because if I think a lot of my patients working in oncology have small bowel obstructions, they're vomiting. So they are having... Um, they're going to be having hypernutremia from their dehydration because they're vomiting out their fluid, their blood volume is decreasing, but they're going to have hypokalemia because they're vomiting out their potassium. And so definitely with electrolytes, definitely gets a little bit tricky, but hyponutremia is volume overload. So back to our question where I'm saying, what could be a cause of volume overload? We paused where we said, ADH is antidiuretic hormones, so that's saying no peeing. And then vasopressin is talking about my blood pressure. So the answer is going to be increased antidiuretic um, hormone secretion. This is SIADH, syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone. That's going to cause you to be, um, that one's going to cause you to be volume overloaded. Next question, which food would most likely to be having our purple um, gallet. And so this one, how I like to think about it is I like to think it's pork, right? Because the first three letters of pork are in the name that pro. So this one is help. We see it used in a lot of pork products, meat products, because it's going to help prevent the um, rancidity of our fat. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.